Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, a lot happening out there in the world. I think a brief comment on the um, immense amount of attention and controversy sparked by Elon Musk planning to buy Twitter. Seems like that is happening. It could still not happen, but um, seems like it's more likely than not at this point. I uh, have been fairly astounded by how much of what has been said about this on both sides seems to miss some obvious points. Uh, Again, from both sides. On the left, there's been a fair amount of hysteria around a billionaire, uh, and one as outspoken and opinionated as Elon, buying Twitter uh, and therefore controlling such an important media property. Well, billionaires control so much of what's important that uh, there's nothing new there. And from the right, there has been a lot of celebratory nonsense about how much is guaranteed to change under Elon's stewardship. If I was going to summarize my opinion here, I'm, I think I'm agnostic as to whether or not Elon can actually do much to improve Twitter. There's some obvious things he could and should do, and I trust will do, like cleaning up a lot of the bots and uh, not doing some of the very stupid things that Twitter has done in the service of its moderation policy in the past. Uh, The people on the left that think that Twitter did not have a problem with heavy-handed moderation either weren't paying attention or uh, agreed with that heavy-handed moderation for ideological reasons. Right. I mean, literally someone got kicked off for life, I believe, for tweeting, men are not women. Right. That was considered hate speech in the context in which she tweeted it. And meanwhile, ISIS and the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, all of all of these groups have accounts in good standing at that point. Right. So that's crazy. And insofar as Elon is going to insist upon a more transparent and ethical moderation policy, that will be to the good. But in truth, if moderation were easy, someone would have figured it out by now. And, you know, I'm not especially close to this problem technically and what uh, algorithms can do to, to solve it, but it just seems like there are always going to be apes in the loop, at least to adjudicate someone being kicked off and reinstated. You, you need people at a certain point to process these claims of who should be kicked off and who shouldn't. And what you have in front of you are an endless series of judgment calls, some of which are trivially easy and some of which are really hard. Right? And I don't see how that problem ever goes away. So I don't see how you don't always have enormous numbers of dissatisfied people in the wake of even the wisest moderation policy. Now, for the so-called free speech absolutists, who seem to not want much of a moderation policy, and who are claiming that Twitter's or any other platform's attempts at moderation in the past amounted to censorship, first of all, we already know what an unmoderated or effectively unmoderated platform looks like. You go over to 4chan or 8chan and see what 
no moderation gets you. Here's where any sane moderation policy parts ways with the First Amendment. Everything happening over at 4chan and 8chan is protected by the First Amendment. I think those platforms should exist. Right now, there are things on there that might be illegal, right? Child pornography and any other video record of a crime that was perpetrated for the purpose of creating the video. There are laws against all of that. People should go to prison for that stuff. Totally understood. But that leaves immense scope for absolutely obnoxious and soul-destroying poison that can be spread on a social network and which most of us want nothing to do with. And there are legitimately hard calls. Like, for instance, I, I think every platform should have a no-doxing policy. And the people who have been kicked off Twitter, people like Alex Jones and even Donald Trump, I think should have been kicked off. And they should have been kicked off largely for their knowingly marshalling their crazy followers to dox and harass and effectively ruin the lives of identifiable people on the platform. Right? That is what was happening. Jones and Trump knew that's what was happening whenever they targeted an individual on social media. And it was absolutely despicable. But there is no bright line between malicious doxing and necessary journalism. Right? As you just sort of know it when you see it. Do I think that members of ISIS should be doxxed? Absolutely. Right? Show me some terrorist atrocity with people caught on cell phone cameras or security cameras. Do I want those people identified? Do I want them caught by the cops? Of course. But do I want somebody who has an opinion that is not shared widely by the woke mob doxxed by that mob? and hunted as an apostate out in the real world because of what happened to them on Twitter? Of course not. But again, this is a hard problem to solve, and there will be edge cases. And I just don't see how that problem goes away by taking Twitter private, or by cleaning up all the bots, or by implementing an appropriate algorithm. There's still going to be people at the end of the day trying to figure out where the edge cases are and what to do about them. So I think the right and the left have much of this wrong. I think appeals to the First Amendment are generally misleading. I think we want platforms that have coherent moderation policies that prevent them from becoming like 4chan and 8chan. And I certainly wish Elon the best of luck in developing such a policy, implementing it, and in making Twitter better than it is. I think Elon's claim that Twitter is the town square and that it's absolutely crucial to make it much more in line with the First Amendment is an understandable but I think ultimately dubious one. Twitter isn't the town square. There are many successful influential people who are not on Twitter. The problem is that most people in tech most people in journalism, most academics, and certainly Elon among them, are addicted to Twitter. And I think it's pretty clear, or it should be, that in almost every case, that addiction is counterproductive. It's not to say that Twitter isn't useful. 
I'm still on it. I still find it a valuable source of news and recommendations. Uh, Occasionally, it's a great spot to connect with someone who I wouldn't otherwise connect with. But I have pulled back a lot because I witnessed a fair amount of the dysfunction of over-engaging with the platform in my own life, right? And I certainly see that dysfunction well advertised in the lives of others. So there are many reasons not to be on Twitter or not to be on it much. And there are many people who are thriving who are not on it. So it's not the town square. You have not lost your personhood if for some reason you get deplatformed from Twitter. So I think the analogy to the town square is a false one. And I think the notion that any legal speech must be tolerated on the platform is going to lead to a truly awful place to be. And then people will be free to leave and start a new platform. Anyway, this topic comes up, however briefly, in my conversation today. And in the end, there'll be much more to say about it. But um, I think creating a social media platform that actually works, that becomes a place where smart, well-intentioned people are wise to spend their time, I think that is a really difficult problem to solve. And I certainly hope someone solves it. Anyway, those are my two cents. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Douglas Murray. Douglas is a friend who's been on the podcast before. He's the author of several books, most recently The War on the West, which we talk about in depth. Uh, His previous books were The Strange Death of Europe and The Madness of Crowds. He's also an associate editor for The Spectator. He writes for several other publications. He's immensely prolific. And as you'll hear, he is always great to talk to. We get deep into his book, The War on the West. Before we do, I go fishing for some areas where we might disagree. And actually, this question of moderation on social media platforms is one of those areas. We talk about the problem of hyperpartisanship on the left and the right, and the primacy of culture. Uh, We talk about the problem with Trump, and um, use the Hunter Biden laptop controversy as a, a lens there. We talk about the deplatforming of Trump and Alex Jones, specifically. And then we get into the topic of his book proper. We talk about the new religion of anti-racism, the problem of inequality, the 1619 Project, the history of slavery, moral panics, the strange case of Michel Foucault, and other topics. Anyway, it's always great to talk to Douglas. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And I bring you Douglas Murray. I am here with Douglas Murray. Douglas, thanks for joining me again. It's a huge pleasure to be with you, Sam. So um, we have a lot to talk about. I, I mm. was uh, first. I should apologize to our listeners for canceling the the live Zoom event, which um, had been scheduled for this podcast. But as I told you offline. Uh, the house across the street from me was being demolished, and um, <laughs> rather than have uh, sounds of the apocalypse intrude <laughs> upon our recording, uh, I, I had to. Uh, I couldn't. I had to forsake my Zoom recording space in order to go just for the pure audio experience. So well, there we well, are. I'm I, I'm in New York, uh, Sam. So it's permanent Armageddon noises in right. the background here. So it would be, we could have cancelled each other out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have a new book which we will 
definitely talk about. That, that book is The War on the West, and it is a, um, in case it's not obvious from the title, it is a passionate defense of Western culture of a sort that um, only you could muster. And uh, it's a fantastic read. It's actually a doubly fantastic listen. I, I read some oh, of it and, and listened to the rest of it. And uh, as I did with your last book, I can't remember if you, I don't think I heard the audio for um, The Strange Death of Europe. That I, wasn't done by me, sadly. Okay. Yeah, only this one and uh, Madness of Crowds. Yeah. Done by me. So both of those, The Madness of Crowds and, and your new one, The War on the West, you read and it's uh, one of the great pleasures of having ears and a brain to which they're connected is to hear you, I mean, to, reading your own stuff is great, but to hear you reading quotations from people you deem to be either insane or, or uh, sinister and giving it the, the top spin of, of, <laughs> of, a, of, of derision is just amazing. So I, well, I recommend that people That's very kind of you to say so. so I, I actually, I enormously enjoy doing my own audio books, partly because I find it incredibly funny. And with Madness of Crowds, as with The War in the West, I had to apologize repeatedly to the sound engineers and explain to them, I wasn't laughing at my own jokes. Right. I, I, was, I was laughing at the things I quote because so often they're ridiculous on the page, but they're even more ridiculous when you say them out loud. <laughs> yeah. And, and just some of your own writing also gets the benefit of your reading. And there, there are lines that really are laugh out loud funny, which um, yeah, I'm not sure everyone would discover on the page quite as, mm. as readily as when, when you're, you're reading them. That's, so it's, that's very kind. There was one in Matters of Crowd, as I remember, that was much better on Audible, which was I, I quoted somebody referring to something as being literally like Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. And I say, not just any old Mein Kampf, but Adolf Hitler's <laughs> Mein Kampf. <laughs> it's much better in audio than on the page. Yeah. So you, you've, you've had a tremendous amount of fun at the expense of the left, and we will get mm. into that. But I want, I mean, one thing I, I noticed when I announced this conversation, when I, mm. when I announced the Zoom event, I got some of your, your hate mail mm. on social media. And some of my own, perhaps. And I mm -hmm. think many people were expecting that any conversation between the two of us about the derangement of the left would mm. just be an exercise in confirmation bias, right? We're basically yes. going yeah, to agree about in everything. Yeah, yeah, there's something in that. Yeah. And so I think I, it would be good for us to remain alert to any areas where we actually might disagree. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. I think we will fully agree, perhaps with, you know, tiny little shadings of gray somewhere uh, when, when our attention is directed to the left and to the topic of your book. But I think if we talk about the right at all, mm -hmm. that we may find some differences of opinion. Sure. I mean, I mean one, one area of difference for me, and maybe, maybe we can just start here, because I, I do see, I, again, we, we totally agree about the central problem in its leftist form. But I do see the, a, a similar thing happening on the right, and you mm -hmm. don't tend to focus on it. And I guess my, I do have a general question as to why, but let, let me just spell it out for you. Mm -hmm. I think the generic problem that we both see is that there's now a concern with identity mm -hmm. that seems to supersede any honest engagement with ethics or facts or even a concern about whether one's own beliefs are internally consistent, right? So there's just mm. immense double standards and instances of hypocrisy and just shoddy thinking mm. happening under the aegis of, of identity politics. But I, I'm finding this both on the right 
and the left. And I mean, it's on the, you know, there's this obsession with group difference and victimhood. Mm -hmm. There's the same willingness to destroy institutions without any thought Mm -hmm. as to what could replace them. Um, There's the right has just grown demented by conspiracy theories and a Mm -hmm. a cult of personality, you know, under Trump. Mm -hmm. And so on the left, you'll, you'll, you'll see people deny that, you know, there's anything strange about being told that all white people or in, inherit the original sin of racism, or that there's anything strange about uh, a new book titled "Anti-Racist Baby," right? I mean, this mm. is this is where we'll, mm. we'll we'll get deep into this when we mm. hit your book. But on the right, we see people denying that there's anything wrong with Trump or the January sixth mm-hmm. attack on the Capitol yeah, yeah, yeah. or the big lie about the 2020 election. So I guess my my question for you, in search of possible disagreement here, is mm. is why focus exclusively on the left? Well, the first thing is I don't. Uh, and I'm always, sl- I, I, I'm sure like you, Sam, I've become aware of quite easily of who doesn't read me. And, you know, actually an interviewer said to me the other day, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you think about what people think about you? Sort of thing. And I said, I just, I don't really know what they think. I don't spend that much time trying to absorb it. But I know when people don't read me, and I know that one of the signs is when people say, you only talk about X, mm. when actually I write about a pretty wide range of subjects. I write three to four national newspaper columns a week, and I wouldn't be employable if I wrote about only one issue. Well, well, well let me just to uh, claim not to be f- guilty of, of not sure. reading you, as I, because I do. Perhaps only is too strong, but I mean, so you and I both have several friends and colleagues, and in certain cases, it might be former friends and colleagues, who have been fighting from the same trench as the mm. two of us aimed at the mm. left, but they've focused entirely on the left, right? I mean, they, and, right. and some well, of them appear to have lost their minds, or at least lost certain principles of intellectual honesty, and mm. I, I won't name names. I know, I know you know who I'm talking about. And, you know, I, I certainly don't put you in that category, mm. but there's no question that you, this book you've just written is entirely focused on the leftist assault on Western culture. Yes, uh, well, because, it's, it, because I see the, the, the left as providing the assault that I'm trying to push back against, mm. identify, and, and uh, I think inoculate us against. But I mean, I'm by no means silent on problems on the right. Obviously, I'm more politically aligned with the right than you are. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't particularly mind that, albeit the right that I knew from the UK is rather different from some of the American right. But that's mm-hmm. not to dodge matters. Um, it's simply to say, as I say, about people n- not reading me, I mean, anyone who, who reads, you know, what I write will know that I've consistently critiqued my own side. Yeah. I mean, for instance, and let me just rattle off a few that come to the, the top of my mind. Immediately, the da- January the sixth happened. I wrote in the main conservative newspaper in the UK. This sits solely at the feet of Donald Trump. He led his troops to the top of the hill, and what did he expect them to do? I make no apology for that. Got plenty of criticism for it from people, but I still will not regard and do not regard the attack on the U.S. Capitol as being nothing. And uh, uh, have have consistently said that, among other things, you know, whatever happens with Donald Trump himself. You cannot claim that what people around him were saying was not essentially up to and past the point of what we call incitement. Mm. That seems perfectly clear, and I've, and, I've, and I've written about that repeatedly. And let me give you two other quick examples. There are on the American right things, and I've been in America for a year now, there are things which do not exist 
anything like the proximity to the political center on the American right that, that, uh, than, than what, uh, what exists in Britain. Uh, we'll give you a couple of examples. Mm. I mean, the obvious one is conspiracy theories. Another one is like, very unpleasant forms of prejudice, which, again, would totally uh, knock you out of the race in the UK. Just, in fact, the, I spent uh, New Year's Day this year not taking uh, a break uh, because a, I won't name him, but a very ugly, unpleasant uh, right winger in the US had, been, had spent his New Year tweeting about people, one particular person who he described as having a Rothschild physiognomy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, spoke to Barry Weiss and, uh, and said, this is, this is where the right goes wrong. This guy is actually affiliated with some conservative institutions in the US. It seems to me totally intolerable. That's, that uh, a flagrant anti-Semitism should be anywhere near the center of the American right, and uh, immediately criticized him for this, and got, I have to say, I mean, absolutely no reward in return, only a, a heap of bile from right-wingers who thought that he was either ignorant and didn't know what he was saying, or that there was nothing wrong with talking about people having a Rothschild physiognomy. And thirdly, I'd say, just off the top of my head, at uh, the moment that, uh, that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, I saw that a part of the right in America was going very wrong indeed, yeah. as was a part of the right in Europe. And I immediately used my column in The Spectator, which is the oldest right of center magazine, the oldest weekly magazine in the English-speaking world. I used my weekly column there to talk about the right that had gone wrong on Russia, how it had been misled, how it was lying, how it was providing counterfactuals, counterinformation, how it was pumping out Russian disinformation how it had fallen for Vladimir Putin and been taken for a ride. Again, I say this not just because anyone can go and search this stuff, but because I don't think I ever make, I ever have any problem with saying what I think about people who are identified as being on my own side. And there's a reason for that. It's not tactical. It's because I don't want to be a million miles near these people. Right. I wouldn't want to be near these people. So when people say, and they did with that person I identified who was obviously a nasty little anti-Semite, when they said, oh, you've no idea how many people are going to turn on you about this, I said, I don't care. Why would I care? Why would I care? Why would I want to be aligned with people who thought that Vladimir Putin was the savior of Christendom and a devout, honest Christian who, who must sort of provide the bulwark to the madness of, of left-wing liberalism? Of course not. I don't want to be anywhere near these people. And as for the Trump point, by the way, I mean, sorry, it sounds like but only because the nature of the question, I don't sound too self-defensive, but at, at the, no less a platform than the National, uh, the, the conservative, what's it called, the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando, Florida last year, I was on a stage with several people you'd know, mm. and the question of Trump came up. I criticized Trump in front of an audience that was mainly supportive of him, and I said there is something absolutely unsustainable about the fact that a an, at an audience, in front of an audience like this, I mean, various people like Ted Cruz had spoken as well. And I said, one of the only dissenting notes of the conference, and I said, among other things, that it is totally unsustainable that, that you have this situation where at a conference like this, somebody asks a question about Donald Trump, and everyone on the panel pretends to know less than they know about him. You know, right. they, they pretend not to know that he's got a really horrible character, for instance, and pretend that merely his uh, ability to win is what we like, and therefore we'll park everything else. You know, uh, we'll pretend that January the 6th didn't happen and that it's just the libtards going mad. I said that in front of that audience. Again, I'm not searching for popularity, but I would not want to be on a stage, which included people who simply uncritically praise Donald Trump and join in with it. Why would I want to be anywhere near that? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm very glad I gave you an opportunity to um, get that off your chest because it, you, you're often lumped in with the people who do not make those points, uh, which I think are absolutely just necessary concessions to political sanity. Ooh. And it's a problem. So I just, you know. By the way, sorry, one other whilst I'm at it, which is yeah. I said immediately after I, I covered the US election for a number of newspapers and I traveled around about 10 states in the days before the 2020 election, in the weeks before the 2020 election. I uh, went f- everywhere from, you know, sort of across the country, uh, covered a Trump rally uh, in, in uh, Florida. And uh, the minute that the, the, the results came out, the right started to lie about them. I said then, in, again in The Spectator, I said, this is going to be a real problem for us because these people are going to waste our time for years. They are going to waste yeah. our time with this conspiracy about this election. And they don't realize that they're not just wasting our time, they're wasting their own because they will do the crucial mistake that always happens when people fall into this, as some Democrats did after 2016. They will fall into the mistake of thinking that they won, and as a result, they will not do the necessary self-searching that you need to do when you've actually lost an election and work out why you've lost. You know, yeah, so it's to their right. own fault as well. It, 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 it both demeans their opponents and it demeans themselves. I said that straight away. Yeah, so, okay, so let's... Um... Again, before we dive into the left Ooh. side of the chaos, no, we should focus on the right for sure. Yeah, no, I, no, I just want to see if I can find the generic essence of our problem first. I mean, I, I think we we both are worried about what appears to be a derangement of our culture, and hmm. culture is not this expendable thing. Culture really is the operating system for humanity at this point. Hmm. I mean, we have you know, insofar as we we surmount, you know, mere nature, uh, you know, red and tooth and claw, we arrive fully in culture. And mm. it's just, just the basis for every epistemic and emotional and ethical engagement with, with our shared social reality. And, mm. you know, politics is a strand of that, but it's, it's much more to it than politics. And what we're seeing now is a, an environment wherein misinformation and moral panics and social contagion are getting made immensely worse by social media and mm-hmm. current trends of you know loss of trust in institutions and yeah. just other forms of fragmentation of society and again mm-hmm. this is you know what whatever we're going to say about the left as crazy as it as it is and as easily seen to be in 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 your recent book you know on the right we have QAnon and the other mm. odious exports from Trumpistan. I mean, just the, the amazing thing on the right, I mean, the, the, the moment I can't forget, and, and really it was the point of, of no return for us, I thought, politically, was when we had a sitting president repeatedly not commit to a peaceful transfer of power mm. in the event that he yeah. lost an election, right? He was given yeah, multiple absolutely. opportunities to do this, and he refused. And the Republican Party was okay with that. And I mean, this mm. precedes January 6th, right? And all the, the knock-on effects of that. But the, just in the run-up to the, to the election, when we have mm. a president who won't commit to the, arguably the, the most important norm politically yes. in our system, uh, you know, upon which everything else that matters is anchored politically, and that the Republican Party just swallowed that without comment, it just, it seemed to me to be 
it was it was a sign that we actually could lose our democracy in the hands of this mm. buffoon. And uh, I mean, I know you you were uh, you objected to that at the time as well. But it's so many people who will delight in the contents of your book and who want to hear everything we have to say about the craziness on the left just didn't care about that, mm. you know. And and I, I'm just well, yeah. I, I, I say several things. I mean, one is several years ago, our mutual friend Jordan Peterson and I did a discussion in um, on video about where the left goes wrong, which was a discussion which I thought was really very interesting, very generative. And because of this idea that Jordan kicked off, which was, you know, we sort of have a clear idea of where the right goes wrong politically and playing games of racial superiority, for instance, authoritarianism mm. and much more. We don't have an absolutely clear blueprint by contrast of where the left goes wrong. And I think that's a totally accurate yeah. statement. And I think that it is a big problem. Where is it in collectivism? Where is it within the, the, the social justice movement that the left starts, you know, how do you end up with the gulag? And we had a very interesting discussion about this. And one of the things looking back on it, and I've said this since, including to Jordan, I said this to him indeed when we did a discussion, a podcast on his podcast a couple of days after January the 6th. I said, when we did that discussion several years ago, we did it in the belief that it was clear where the right went wrong and that the right was therefore unlikely to go wrong. Mm. And we can no longer make that assumption. We're having to revisit those statements, those, those basic underpinnings that we thought everybody had. We do actually have to revisit them. And we did, by the way. And again, I don't say this to, by any means to search for praise, but neither Jordan nor I got any particular love for, from followers for this. Yeah. But I, I said to him, this is a very important thing that two figures who are more identified as being on the right than the left, certainly, make it plain that, that this is where the right goes wrong. And the discussion we had included us, I thought, rather helpfully helping each other to the following realization. I think the best way I could sum it up is, I said, if you went back five years from where we were then uh, to say like 2015, and you said there is going to be a time in 2020 in American politics where a significant amount of the right is going to believe the following, that no media is telling the truth, that no politicians tell the truth, that the law courts are all totally corrupted, that every one of the intelligence agencies is totally corrupted, that the, that the ballot is totally corrupted to the extent that an election is going to be stolen. But you have one great virtue on your side. There is one virtuous man in the republic. And you know who that man is? It's the dude off The Apprentice. Yeah, it's Donald J. Trump. Now, yeah. if you'd have said that to anyone in 2015, they'd have said, oh, sorry. And, and also the, the, the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, he, he's also uh, completely corrupted mm. and not, not a conservative. <laughs> if you'd have said that to someone in 2015, they'd have said that you're a maniac. Yeah. How is that going to happen? How, how am I going to end up in a position where the only man who I'm going to trust and possibly turn up to the Capitol and, and risk my life for and, 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 and risk other people's lives for is, is Donald J. Trump, like, of, 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 of all the people? Yes. Yeah, uh, that, that's a point I've almost made before in, in the following form. I, back in 2015, I would have said that there was... Literally not a single Fortune 500 company in America that would have ever had the thought, the situation is, is really grim for us. We, what we need is a complete 
rebooting of our organization. We need to bring in a new CEO. <laughs> we need to find them. And we have found the most competent, most inspiring person mm. for the job. And that man is Donald Trump. Yes, right? that, yes. that would have been- We've a, done a, a headhunting exercise, guys. Yeah. And we've come back with us all. Yeah. <laughs> a man of high integrity. Yes, That's what we need. Yeah. Never uh, knowingly told an untruth. Yes, uh, but uh, so this is this is definitely a problem, and it's a problem of uh, I would say particularly of the American right, and the 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 problem is obviously that there is something that Trump taps into which they fear that nobody else can, mm. and I don't know whether they're right or not. I have no electoral crystal ball. What I do know also is that there's one other instinct which is worth highlighting, which is that the um, for some years I think in the cultural realm and others. There was a perception on the conservative side that conservatives had played too nice. That basically what happened was that the left, in, the left advanced incrementally and sometimes actually in bounds. That it that it enjoyed rubbing the right's noses in its defeats. That conservatives were too gentlemanly to ever do anything other than slightly slow down that progress of the left or. To fight another, to fight the next battle, they were going to lose, and that this was the sort of trajectory of politics. Now, again, I'm not saying that I agree with it or disagree with it or whether it's true or not. That was a perception on the right, and that 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 the point that Donald Trump came along, as far as it seems to me, and I, by the way, I tried to persuade, I tried for most of his presidency not to write about him because I, I thought that since everyone on the planet had a thought, it wasn't particularly worth my while adding to the melee. And I thought the same with Brexit, incidentally, after the Brexit vote happened. Mm. Not that they're connected. But I just, I, I tend not to, if everybody on the planet is writing about the same thing, I tend not to want to join in the cacophony. And also because it would seem to me there was relatively little to add. But, but just, just to, to, to return to this point, the, you know, it, it, there, was a, there was this perception on the right, particularly in America, and they did something which I think is both understandable and reprehensible, which was to essentially choose as a tool of fight, a weapon of fighting, the weapon that they believed would most upset their opponents. It effectively goes to that instinct to hurt your enemy, not to, to just win, mm. to kick them in the balls. And Donald Trump was that dirty fighter. And the right suddenly, or a section of the right, suddenly got excited about that. They got excited about the fact there was somebody who took the fight to the enemy, who you know, literally calling them the enemy, that, that who would derange the other side, you know, all that sort of liberal tears sort of thing. Yeah. It was, it was rejoicing in it, saying basically, we're so fed up because we've spent years being bullied, and so we're going to have some fun being the bully. And uh, that is, as far as I can see, the dynamic that led to Donald Trump. And, has, and because the Republicans don't know whether they can tap into that feeling of resentment without his aid, they're sort of sticking around him. That's why you have this ludicrous dance that's going on at the moment where no one will declare. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's one, again, in the service of looking for some place where that we might discern mm -hmm. some daylight between us. Uh, I think there's going to be very little, but there's one instance that I am genuinely undecided about. I mean, in, in, the, in the rubble of our information space, uh, one thing mm. stands out to me recently. I, I don't know if you've written about it, or I think I've heard you comment about it briefly on a podcast, but the Hunter Biden laptop mm. uh, scandal, right? Mm -hmm. That is a, I genuinely don't know what I think should have happened there, because it was a, let's just 
summarize the, the state of our knowledge currently is that it was treated like a product of Russian disinformation at the time. Mm -hmm. There, there were you know, a bunch mm -hmm. of former intelligence chiefs signed a letter saying this is, you know, classic fake news out of Russia, mm -hmm. and it was treated like, you know, pornography uh, uh, journalistically and suppressed by social media, Twitter, mm -hmm. I think, delinked yes. yes. New York Post's account. I think you couldn't forward the story any longer. That's right. And all of this was done you know, immediately before the, the election. This was the, the, some mm -hmm. kind of October surprise. And at the time, I didn't know what to think about it. I, I, you know, I didn't know any more than anyone else knew uh, who was being denied access to the information, except I did know one thing, which is I didn't care if Hunter Biden had severed heads in his basement. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, like there was, there was literally nothing you could have told me about Hunter Biden that would have been relevant to me when the goal was to keep Trump out of office at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was just, I, I did view Trump, given, you know, the aforesaid non commitment to the most important mm -hmm. principle of the survival of our democracy, I, I viewed him as an existential threat. And, and given what had happened in 2016 with Comey. Uh, reopening, you know, the email, right. the case into Hillary Clinton's emails. We know that, you know, though her failure to win the presidency was certainly overdetermined, we know that in the in the last eleven days of the campaign, that was the the coup de grace, right? With you know, and mm. this could have proved the same for for yeah. the, ele you know, the election of Biden because it was it was going to be this bright shiny object that was going to captivate everyone and suck up all the oxygen. So I, I, I honestly don't know what I think should have happened there because I think you and I will agree that there really is a problem when you have the, our preeminent sources of journalism pretending that a significant story is in fact a non-story. Mm. You know, I, I guess I should close the loop on this. It's recently been admitted by the New York Times in an article to which they gave very little oxygen that, uh, oh, sorry guys, this really was a, mm -hmm. a story. and. It was legitimate, and all, there are all kinds of heinous things on that laptop. Yes. And who knows to what degree it, it suggests the corruption of, of Joe Biden and the, the, mm. the Biden family in their engagement uh, overseas. So I don't know, I don't know how, how you feel about that, but I, I, I don't know what the counterfactual is, what, what might have been mm. done differently that would, would, would have been within bounds ethically, journalistically, but it's just... I just, I, I don't know what I would change about the past uh, with respect to that story, yeah. given the I, outcome. I, I should declare an interest. I, 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 am, I do write a weekly column for the New York Post, which is the, the paper that broke the story, of course. Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually writing for the Post at the time, all, uh, uh, apart from occasionally. And now I'm a regular, so I just add that as a, as it were, just in case anyone right. thinks there's a conflict of interest. But uh, I had no, no involvement in the Hunter by laptop story, but I know the people who, who, who were involved in it. I think that it was a, a, a catastrophic mistake to silence the Post, America's oldest newspaper, at that moment. I thought it was a decision by a few big tech companies who were basically helping Biden out to win the election. The contents of the laptop, there's a good book by a colleague of mine at the New York Post, Miranda Devine, who did a lot of the work on the story, one of the people who had access to everything on the laptop. Uh, there's a very good book about it now called Laptop from Hell. Which, 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 if you if you read or even you read excerpts from, you'll see that the the problem is not. I mean, I, I should stress, I'm not that prurient a person, 
and I actually have no, and I mean, nobody's not pro it, but I have genuinely have no interest in the rather sad private life of Hunter Biden. And I would have thought that a lot of the story would have got caught up with that, was people looking at dick pics and, and um, falling asleep with smack beside him and this sort of thing. I, I have no interest in that, and I don't think mm. it would have made any serious change to the election. That wasn't the real story. The story was, as you mentioned, the fact that Hunter Biden had been making money, among other places in Ukraine, to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to sit on a board of an energy company in a discipline he doesn't have in a country he doesn't know, in a job he wasn't doing. Now, does that matter? You might say no. What matters, as comes across in some of the emails, which now not only the New York Times, but the Washington Post has said, okay, the emails are true. And by the way, they could have done all of this back then. It wasn't hard to, you could have called up anyone who was on the receiving end of any of the emails, of the many emails that are on the laptop and say, is this actually an email from, from Hunter Biden to you? And they could have confirmed or denied. It would not have been a hard story to have chased up and followed up as the Post did then. But none of the rest of the media came in behind. And the things that are on, on about the business thing should concern people. I mean, I think a lo- uh, the top of American politics is more corrupt than almost any other civilized nation, it has to be said. There is, something, there is something outrageous about the amount of money that can be accrued at the top of American politics, both during and after office. Mm. And that is not exclusive to any one party. I think that it is, I mean, whenever there's a financial scandal in the UK, by comparison, it is laughable, you know. People, $15 changed hands. Yeah, exactly. Somebody was, there was a backbench Labour MP at the time who got into incredible trouble because she expensed a whirlpool bath that cost 800 pounds. I was <laughs> in America, this would be absolutely nothing, you know, compare it to Nancy Pelosi's share deals. But the point is, is that, is that, is that the, the, the interesting thing in the laptop was Hunter saying to his daughter, for instance, whatever I do in, to you in your life, know that, that I will never do what my father did to me and demand half of all the money I earn. Now, that is a very interesting story, if true. If it's true that, there mm. is, that, that, that Hunter Biden makes money and the father hives part of it off and we know that the uncle takes part. Look, the problem is, is that nobody on the left, as far as I can see, particularly wants to engage in this. Why? Because they'll say, but Trump. They don't like it, they wish it away, and they'll say, but Trump. Mm. Well, that is exactly what the right does with some of the Trump stuff. They say, but Biden, but Democrats, but Hillary. And so they should have published. I don't think the private prurient stuff would have made any difference. But I think that a realization that the top level of American politics is, is wildly corrupt, that there is, that, that family members of people, again, in both parties, become rich when their relatives enter the White House, Congress, or what's more. I think that is something that's worth confronting. Would it have changed the results of the election? I don't know. Nobody does know. But the New York Post was completely right to run because this was a hell of a story. Mm. And the rest of the media were woefully uh, um, gave themselves away and, uh, uh, by, by not reporting. And the media companies revealed what was revealed after the election, which was anyone could tell, which was that a lot of the tech bosses and others were so desperate to make sure that Trump didn't win the election, that they were willing to suppress news that was negative about Biden. I think that's a scandal. Uh, I think it is, it is part of the thing that leads to this ever-increasing distrust in every single entity of power and information. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I just think that Trump, given his, I would argue, treasonous non-commitment to 
the most basic principles of, of our democracy, he is a singular problem that had to be solved at that moment. Well, and the, I would have said that I would have said that American democracy. Let's 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 take the idea of Trump being a kind of stress test of the American Republic. Hmm. The American Republic survived him. Now you might think it was close by the skin of our teeth. I do. By the skin of our teeth, but it survived. Yeah. Court survived. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the the democracy survived. But it was now, down to a handful of people who would just not accede to his demands. Had Mike Pence done as instructed, had a mm. few re Republican election officials done as instructed, mm. we would have had an absolute constitutional crisis, but, the, the resolution to which was just non-obvious. Absolutely. But, but, but they, did, they did stand up. Yeah, you know, Lindsey mm. Graham did say on the floor of the House on the 6th of January, I have asked repeatedly for evidence from the evidence of this fraud in the election, and, they do, and he doesn't provide it to me. So I agree that too many people went along with it. There were, there were mad theories going around. Almost none of it has stood up since. But, but let me just return to this issue of the, of the laptop, because it's, imp it's important in terms of this issue of trust in American politics, which mm -hmm. disturbs the hell out of me. The problem with the Post story was not just the suppression of the story, but what you described, Sam, the, the joint letter by intelligence chiefs saying yep. this is classic Russian disinformation. Here's the problem. In my view, every single person who signed that letter should lose their pension, should be cashiered, should be, should be disgraced. Why? Because these were, these were people involved in the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, who became political actors in order to support the suppression of a newspaper breaking a story that enabled Joe Biden to be elected president. It was a wildly political intervention. And it has- Except, except though, Douglas, that we, we know that there was massive Russian meddling into every aspect of the conversation. I mean, on social media, within the hacking of, of the DNC, there was an, a continuous assault upon our democracy with a kind well, of inf information warfare campaign from Russia. So. It, it was certainly plausible to think that this might have been uh, well, Russian compromise of some kind. You know, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's not I, a crazy allegation. Um, I, on the contrary, I think it is. I think that, that, that both sides have wound themselves up in American politics in recent years and politicized institutions that should never have been politicized and have overemphasized this allegation that the democracy has been hacked. The Democrats did it immediately after the 2016 election. Again, it's not a popular point to make to some Democrat listeners, but what Donald Trump did in 2020 was unforgivable. But part of his ability to get away with it, I believe, came from the fact that there were so many Democrats who were not willing to believe that he had been legitimately elected in 2016 either. In other words, what I'm saying is, you might say it's a 1% injection of falsehood or a 5% injection, but the point is, is that it was already up for grabs in America that the ballot was not secure that the vote was not secure, that you could be hacked by Russia and actually it didn't matter. Now, here's the thing. You're now at this stage, and I've, I wrote this some time ago, if you translate this into the British context. In Britain, if you had a situation where conservatives, never mind, we could put the left side for the second, but I can do the same exercise on the left. Conservatives didn't believe that any of the following institutions were on their sides. The court, the ballot, MI5, MI6, the police, the GCHQ, 
if they believed that all of these institutions and more were against them, these people would no longer be conservatives. They would be something else, but they would not be conservatives. You cannot be a conservative if you believe that there are no institutions in the state that are trustworthy. Hence what's so strange about the Republican Party at the moment. You you could argue it's not at all conservative. I I think there's there's a lot of truth in that. And again, the problem with this is, is that there is, a, there is an element in everything that they believe on this that is true. It is true that the intelligence services, for instance, in the US have massively politicized themselves unnecessarily. They have therefore ended up losing the trust of even the political side that would be most likely to be nascently supportive of them as a, an institution of state. Again, I mean, when, to give one other example, when in our lifetimes before could you have mag- imagined a situation, not when the left derided and dismissed the heads of the armed forces, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but where the right did? Yeah. You know, th- that's the, the extraordinary terrain that we're now in. Yeah. No, it was, it, and it, we were in there quite early on when, just during the campaign, when Trump derided John McCain and his service as a, as a you know, a war yes. hero and, and yes, prisoner of, of war and suffered absolutely no political penalty for it. Oh, I remember very clearly sitting, in, um, sitting at a friend's house in, uh, in America the day that that story broke on the front of the post. And I remember this friend who'd been in politics all her life saying, that's him done. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, of course, it, it wasn't. Well, I mean, it happened that on the right, there wasn't that much love for John McCain. It turned out there was a certain amount of respect, but not much love for him. But still, uh, for somebody who, uh, who, who had uh, skipped the draft, to be uh, deriding somebody who'd spent years in a prison of war camp and who had who had refused to leave until his men had left was was a, a very a very I agree a very strange and um, and sinister turn of things. So where do you sit? This is a, an adjacent uh, lurid topic. Where where do you sit on the the subject of deplatforming people like uh, well Trump is one case from Twitter, but uh, maybe a clearer case is someone like Alex Jones. Are you um? A free speech absolutist of of the sort that you think that um, forgive me for leading the witness quite this hard. <laughs> think that private companies should be forced to uh, give a a megaphone to someone like Alex Jones, who is um, uh, you know, mm. with every tweet is is ruining the lives of identifiable people. In general, I am yes. Uh, I, mean, I certainly think Trump should should be on Twitter. But wh- wh- Jones- why would you take? Why wouldn't you take the 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 company's eye view of that, you know, if, if, if I start a social media platform tomorrow, why should I be forced to put any particular person oh, on yeah, it yeah. who I want to exclude? Well, effectively, it's, and it's the thing that Elon Musk pointed out the other week when he started his bid for Twitter, which is whether we like it or not, Twitter is, is the public square. And this dance between private company and that is a, it's a tricky one. I, I, it is a private company. They can make their own decisions. However, it is true that if the tech platforms decide to downregulate you, dampen you, or let alone chuck you off, you are left essentially voiceless. Yeah, but, that but is, clearly, there. But all of these companies have terms of service, which if you violate them by change, declaring a change, but but on any in any plausible terms of service, you would think that ramping up the risk of nuclear war or singling out private individuals who you know, based on the insane multitude following you, will be doxxed immediately and have their lives well, ruined. And then, that, I mean, in, people, in, in fact, that's but, why you target them, 
right? But that's but people do that all the time. A Washington Post reporter just did that to someone. You know, a Washington Post reporter, Taylor Taylor Lorenz, just docks this woman who the private individual who runs this account called Libs of TikTok. That's pretty revealing, quite funny, uh, has a big following. And um, and she uh, she had only a couple of weeks beforehand been complaining about what it's like when a Twitter mob comes for you and indeed cried on air talking right. about this. A couple of well, so, weeks later, so, but, she so doxes personally runs his account. I mean, this goes in all directions. I'm not saying it sure. makes Alex Jones right. And by the way, in the Alex Jones case, I mean, I think it's less clear with him because, I mean, it's just so obvious. But, I mean, the courts are taking care of him. The families of the Sandy Hook victims who he, he defamed and lied about, he's being looked after in the courts. Mm. I mean, it's it's a really, it, it's, I mean, and, and just one other thing, it's an obvious point to make. It doesn't quite solve the deeper point you're trying to get to, but of, of who gets the right to the dart gun, which is, of course, what Twitter is. But it's nevertheless crucial to say that if a platform like Twitter actually cared about, you know, threatening entities on the site, they wouldn't have kept the accounts of the Russian government open all this time. They wouldn't right. have the supreme leader of Iran. Lakshari Taibu carried out the Mumbai massacre remained on Twitter until a couple of years ago when I actually alerted one of the heads of the company to the fact that I thought this was a bit too close to home uh, for most Indian citizens and and much more they're not fit for purpose companies like Twitter grew they're, 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 they're a, a small thing that grew far too fast have ended up having to understand free speech and seem apparently not to have thought about the subject until yesterday and uh, they're incredibly inept and they get inept people to ineptly police it, these platforms. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I, I agree there, and, and it may actually be an impossible task, right, to actually moderate. Yes, it might well billions be. upon billions of posts effectively. But it, it seems to me that if you, for instance, had a no doxing policy, you know, doxing is a is a um, an unrecoverable error on this platform. Well, then it, the, the question is. You should be free to have. I mean, in my view, you should be free to have that policy, and then do your best to enforce it. And if you see irregularities in its enforcement, well, then then those are worthy of criticism. So, a Washington Post writer is probably up for defenestration, also, uh, if if uh, she doxes people. But it just seemed clear that the most prominent examples of people. I mean, in the case of Alex Jones, you you have parents whose six-year-olds were murdered, and he was monetizing their agony mm, by mm. claiming that they weren't murdered and that they were just crisis actors. And there's, there's, there are some of these families that have had to move, literally change homes 10 times mm. since their kids mm. were murdered because of yeah. his insane cult that yeah, is I know. It's following wicked. It's wicked. It's yeah. wicked. But the, uh, I mean, we come back to this thing of, you know, where, how on earth you run this and and clearly nobody exactly knows i mean if you and i were on the board of twitter i think we would struggle with it as you know as well i don't think there's any obvious solution i know that i i know there are some things that are also i think incumbent upon people not to do themselves to make the situation worse can i give a quick example sure which is not even in the realm of laws but in the realm of manners i am i'm consistently horrified by the number of people of particularly young people who are willing to put out on social media things, I simply think they should not put out. I mean, my, my, my rule on this is never, ever say anything that you don't want to be used back at you because you can just bet your life it will be. Hmm. You know, Send out a photo of yourself and someone will say you don't look great, fine. 
send out a photo of yourself with your wife. Somebody will say something about your wife. That's the name of the game. Send out a photograph of your children. Not everyone's going to love your children, and so on and so on. Uh, somebody I know a little bit recently divorced, announced the news on Twitter, and a load of people get into it and celebrate it and are laughing at him and so on. And I just look at this and I think, why on earth would you announce stuff about your private life on this bloody platform? So I do think part of it, and this obviously isn't the case with the Sandy Hook parents or anyone who, who just were thrown into this situation, but a lot of what people complain about on social media of what they get back is a result of them feeding the beast themselves in the first place. And there are things that if you put out there, you're just not going to get 100% positive likes back. It's an ugly medium. It's an ugly platform. And I have infinite compassion for the people who suffer from it and the sort of what's happened with the victims of Alex Jones, but not when it comes to, you know, the, the I said this thing and now I've been criticized and, and, and I'm upset and now I've got PTSD sort of thing. And I'm afraid that is so commonplace now, the cry bully thing, that where people behave one way on social media and can't take it in, in response and complain then. You know, there are pl plenty of cry bullies on, this, on these platforms. And I, I don't have yeah. much sympathy for that. Yeah, well, I think that it's just a, a natural fact that we're new to this uh, situation that evolution, not, neither evolution nor previous culture has prepared us, which is you yeah. can join a mob, a virtual mob, and perform a reputational murder on someone. Hmm. And you can be the object of a mob like that. Yes. And you never quite know what it's like until, until you're on the receiving end. Yes, uh, but also, I mean, people do have to try to find a way to live their lives without this having maximal impact. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I, do think, I do think there's sort of, as I say, the realm of manners in this, the realms of customs, that we, we should also try to come towards a better type of custom with these platforms, you know, in, this, in the same way that we did with email early on. Do you remember the, sort of the beginning of email, you know, people would sort of pass around crazy stories about how if you eat tomatoes, you know, you, could, you will never get cancer, that sort of thing. And just quite early on, those sorts of people who would send those things around learned that people didn't want to get them mm. and stopped. Or at least that was my experience. You know, please don't send me this shit. Thank you. Uh, and they stopped. I mean, we're just not quite there yet, or no, not remotely there yet, with a platform as furious and as fast as Twitter. So, I mean, it, it, you know, we have to, we have to assist our own behavior as well as hoping that Twitter can solve its side of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm not sure how much we disagreed in there. I think we, um, if, we were, if we were on the Twitter board, we might disagree about who hmm. to de-platform. You, you, but would you acknowledge that, I mean, do, do you just think Twitter should be declared essentially effectively no longer a private company uh, able to function by its own policies, but more like the the town square that just has to function yes. in deference to the First Amendment? It, yeah, I think it's basically the Wild West, and mm. there's um, not much you can do about it. And you have to decide whether you want to go into the saloon. Right. That, I, it just seems strange that, because again, I, I take the company's eye view of this. You start a company, for instance, I think, you know, actually, I recommended that Jack Dorsey pull the plug on Twitter at some point, and he would have been given the Nobel Prize for peace. <laughs> yes, I suggested Elon Musk send it into outer space. Yeah, no. So Elon, so Elon's buying Twitter as of as yeah. of the, the hour we're recording this. It seems that's happening, and uh, and taking it private. If he's doing that all with his own money, well, I'm, I'm not sure he is. But let's say he were to do that, 
couldn't he just destroy the entire thing and say, see, yes, I'm doing you all do. a favor? He could do. He could do. So, I mean, so the he, interesting thing is it about it, is, as you know, is that the people who tried to set up rivals to it, it doesn't actually work. I mean, somebody mm. said to me the other day, you know, assume that Elon's a rather smart guy. There must be a reason why he hasn't tried to start his own Twitter. Right. You know? Well, I mean, it's just hard to get to. Once you get the kind of traction people have on Twitter, I mean, you know, he's got 80 million plus people following him. It's, it's yeah. hard to imagine starting that on a, on a new platform. But, but yeah. But, 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 also but remember, just, sorry, just to go. close the loop on what I, where I was going there, if it would be within the bounds of propriety to actually just pull the plug on it, you know, mm. it, it, effectively canceling or, or deplatforming everyone. Why can't you deplatform Alex Jones for his misbehavior? Well, I, as I say, I mean, I would regard him as being a borderline case. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that basically once you go into the realms of harassment, which is where he he was, that's that's a viable case for taking somebody off. I haven't really thought enough about his particular case because I don't follow him very closely. Mm. But I, I know that I know that it's basically unsustainable that an American company deplatforms the U.S. president and doesn't deplatform the Ayatollah of Iran. It's uh, yeah, but if, I just hear that as wild. an argument for de- deplatforming both of them, given who they well, are. It, 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 that that could be the case, although I wouldn't agree with the moral equivalency. But yeah, it could be the case. I mean, as I say, all of these things set themselves up and end up having to run the town square and are just clearly not mm. suitable for the task. I don't, I don't know what all the answers are to it, but as I say, that, that's the, the, most people don't like the unfairness thing. Mm. I mean, personally, you know, I, 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 don't, I think it was wrong to throw Trump off, off Twitter, but you know, I mean, there are obviously upsides. I mean, not least that every day's news is now not about Donald Trump and what he tweeted to today. I mean, that's quite a relief. Yeah, no, it, it definitely had the desired effect, right? I mean, he's not, He's not gone, but he 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 is in a kind of oblivion with respect to the rest of culture and the news cycle, and mm. I think that it, that was a good thing. I, mean, I I do view you know again it, it's only it is a f- historical fact that he was president of the United States, but I actually think it's more accurate to describe him now as the most dangerous cult leader on earth, right? I mean, I just I just mm. think he's you know this. There's just no telling what harm he's capable of creating if he manages to continue to hold half of American society or a third of American society in his thrall. And it's just, it's the most deranging thing to happen in our lifetime, including a global pandemic. Mm. I think it's one of them. I don't think it's the most deranging. I think it's one of the most deranging. But we've, we've, we've lived in several very, very long years mm. uh, where every day has enough information to derange some people. And whereas I've often said that the, um, the, the, the range of the things that have come across us and afflicted us from Trump to pandemic to I know, Afghanistan to Ukraine to all of this stuff, the range of mm-hmm. things means that almost nobody is ending up in exactly the same place as their erstwhile bedfellows. Yeah. Except, except the derangement of all of those other things so much of the onus of that falls on Trump. I mean, just so explain, explain to me why you have Republicans, you know, otherwise sane, well-intentioned human beings, one must presume, lionizing Vladimir Putin at this point in history. I mean, that would have been unthinkable. I, 
I think, but for Trump, right? I mean, is there some other mechanism that got that meme into their heads? Uh, yes, I think so. I think that there is, as I say, I've written repeatedly against these people, but I think that there is a, there is a, there is a section of the right that was misled by Vladimir Putin, and whether it's stupidity or ignorance or generational loss of memory, I don't know. I think it's a combination of all of these things. But I mean, there was certainly an element of the right that, in recent years, has said that American liberalism has gone so wrong that we need a bulwark against it, and the bulwark. Mm. Is is um, and they looked around for people, but one of them that some of them landed on was Vladimir Putin. And I always said this was so monumentally stupid, among other things, because you had to take Vladimir Putin at his own word. I mean, you had to actually pretend that he was this devout, pious ex KGB man who who said his prayers and was going to lead Christendom to revival. You know, you you had to actually believe he was sincere in that. And if you believe that, you're a damn fool. You know, you had to believe mm. that somebody who's used jihadi mercenaries from Chechnya to go and slaughter Ukrainian Orthodox Christians, not that one should need to talk in these terms, but let's talk in those terms for a moment, that that person is somehow the defender of the Christian faith. I yeah. mean, it's so unbelievably stupid. But there is, yes, there's a, there was an element of the right in recent years that fell for that, plus some that just had no history and memory of the Cold War, no memory of what the KGB or the or, or the Kremlin, let's just say, does. And then there were the people who were so fed up with false claims of, of overstatements of what Russia had done in recent years, mm. that they believed that the Kremlin was a sort of quiescent pacifist-like institution that never did anything. You know, I, I mean, it's maddening in itself, but there were so many people who fell for this. And I thought that it was a, an unbelievable error. And what has happened in Ukraine is, is, is one of the fastest demonstrations of a moral error that I've ever seen. Mm. Okay, well, let's take the turn toward uh, the left and its assault on Western civilization, where um, you and I will be uh, singing from the same hymn book, because you, you wrote the hymn book, <laughs> and uh, I just read it. But I think, so I, I think we, just as you thought it was um, unseemly to have to spell out uh, the problem with... Um, recruiting jihadi mercenaries to attack Orthodox Christians as though the, uh, the identities uh, would uh, be um, especially relevant to the moral calculus there. I'm going to lead us in a brief exercise of um, masochism to just um, inoculate some people in our audience against um, the rest of our conversation. I think, mm. I think we need to start with the obligatory acknowledgement that we are two white guys about <laughs> to express our opinions on many combustible topics. <laughs> and yes. uh, I, I know, I mean, I, you know, just this is, um, I guess, half tongue-in-cheek, but um, not entirely. I mean, I, I mean first, I, I, let me just spell out, I consider it morally and intellectually obscene to have to take note of our skin color as a mm. preface to this conversation. But um, the truth is that there are only so many hills I'm willing to die on. And mm. I, I do think it's prudent for us to acknowledge what any sane and compassionate person knows to be true, which is that racism and other forms of bigotry are odious, and mm. that Western culture has been replete with bigotry of all types, as has every culture. And there is certainly some residual racism and bigotry mm -hmm. left to expunge, and there is nothing that you and I will say this should suggest an unawareness, much less a mm -hmm. denial of these facts. 
Yeah. So I don't know if that's, uh, I'm sure you can yeah. more or less sign on to that. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah. No, it's just, I just add that. I mean, it, it's, it seems to me that one of the great disappointments of what I describe as the re-racialization of the, of the public square, one of the great disappointments about it is that you even have to talk about yourself in terms of skin color and that it seems so obvious to me and has done for as long as I can remember that you would in any way identify yourself because of it. It's, it's like some, somebody asked me recently what I was proud about, about being a man. And I said to her, this is the second stupidest question I can imagine after <laughs> being asked what I was proud about, about being white. You know, yeah. I'm not proud of things I haven't done. I don't see why you would be. It's like being proud of being 5'10". Like, what, what the hell is, is that? Hmm. So yes, I think it's, it, it's just already deplorable at the start that, that we are being urged to think of ourselves in these terms because they are precisely the terms that I had been brought up to regard as being so unimportant that we didn't talk about that. Well, I think you and I agree that the, the appropriate goal here with respect to political and moral progress is to arrive in some happy future where race simply does not matter. It has, it has no moral or political valence to it, yes. right? I think no one you cares. Said to me, you said to me once, I think, maybe in a previous discussion, that it would end up having as much importance as your hair color. Yeah, yeah. And, just, and if you just roll that back in the other direction, imagine how insane and counterproductive it would seem if, if we could look ahead and, and predict that at some point in the future, people were going to care about hair color to the degree that they currently care about race. You know, we'll we'll yeah. want to know how many blondes got into Harvard this year, and yes, if, if it yes. doesn't exactly match the population yeah. level, we've got a, a real problem on our hands. Uh, do, yes, I, I go into a bookshop and say, I'd like to see the section written by gingerhead authors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, just as that would be a problem, the, the the ethical daylight ahead of us is in arriving at some colorblind future, mm -hmm. and yet not only is and and that was the goal of someone like you know the the, the leading lights of the the civil rights movement, yeah. people like Martin Luther King Jr. But it's not only not the goal of the current religion of anti-racism; it, it's explicitly not the goal. Yes. I mean, that goal is disavowed, yeah, by many people. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I mean, this is the great moral error that's going on. And I think there, um, there's a little bit of a link to my previous book, because in The Matters of Crowds, as you know, I, I described what I said, what I described as the temptation to overcorrect. That is, mm. um, for instance, to concede that, for instance, in relation to uh, the sexes, obviously, you know, no one but a fool would think that would claim that women in history had had as much opportunity to make their own life choices as men. But you are also a fool if you believe that the answer to that is not equality, but to punish men for a while. You know, uh, no doubt right. that gay people have been prejudiced against in history. You'd be a fool to think that the answer was to portray heterosexual people in a, as being worse than gay people. And in and the most catastrophic overcorrection is is you know you would be a fool to deny that in societies in the West, particularly in America. Black people have not had the same rights as, as white people, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's all the evidence is there. Every, every school child is taught it and knows about it. You'd be a fool to deny it. But equally, you're a fool to think that the answer to that historic racism is present racism. And the problem is, is that as far as I can see, 
the modern neo-racist movements led by people like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi and others is to do precisely that. And they actually say it in terms as such. I quote them. They say that the answer to past prejudice is present prejudice. The answer to, to past inequities is present inequities. And what they mean is, very clearly, black people have been prejudiced in, against in the past, and so we must be prejudiced against white people in the future. And I have to call this out for a range of reasons, one of which is you just, it's so unfair. It's such a moral mistake. It's leading to such wild statements made about white people of a kind that we just wouldn't tolerate from about any other group. And the final, as it were, bit of that is it's also a strategic error of unbelievable proportions. Because yeah. my view is, if you tried to persuade a minority, a minority group in your country that they were less than other people by dint of their skin color, and tried to, present, tried to say to them that because of their skin color, they were guilty from birth, that all of their ancestors were bad, that they had no right to feeling any kind of pride in their past or achievements. If you tried that on a minority, I think you'd be unlikely to win. How on earth would you persuade a majority to go along with that? And that's what people like D'Angelo and these other race huxers have been trying to do. D'Angelo in White uh, um, Fragility, which sold half a million copies just in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, uh, Robin D'Angelo says, there is no good form of being white, and whiteness is inescapable. And, you know, I just carry out the same exercise I do on anything else. Try that with any other word in your mouth. You know, try mm -hmm. saying that there's no good form of blackness and you can't avoid being black. It, it would be intolerable for any group to be talked about like this. And I, the, the, my best explanation, my, my, as it were, fairest explanation of why it's happening is because people think that there's a sort of a writing of a moral scale, and that at some point in the future, after we've beaten up on white people for a bit, it'll come back to some nice even uh, position. But actually, I think what we're dealing with here is is what I describe as people who talk about justice but really mean revenge. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's a very insidious point of confusion because right? you know it, it, they they can they can feel like the same thing when you're in the grip of. Mm. Of a uh, a lust for vengeance, but there there's so much here that is that is not about. I mean, the the the, the forsaking of of any kind of commitment to to universal values is really mm. at the bottom of this problem. I mean, yes, people, right. when you're when when identity politics is your is your software, you don't care that it's unfair. You don't care that you can't. You're not following anything like a categorical imperative. You you don't care. Yeah. You're all, you only care that you're you, right? And the other yeah. group isn't. And so it's really by any means necessary that you're going to try to eke out some advantage. And it just doesn't scale. I mean, then the next, if you, even if you're on the winning side of that particular skirmish, the next time you'll be on the losing side, and there'll be no right. standard. There'll be no norm you can appeal to, fairness right. or otherwise. And I mean, people, people shouldn't think and, um, that anyone listening, that, that what I'm describing in this is a kind of fringe movement. Well, let, let's you know, dr the... drill down on that point here, because mm. I, I think that is a very common allegation still, that, mm. the, kind, you know, the, 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 the claim that critical race theory is being pumped into the veins of children at this point in, the, in their schools, or that it's vitiating one institution after the next, whether it's the New York Times or or um, Disney or you know, some other corporation, mm -hmm. 
that that is wildly exaggerated by right-wing activists <laughs> who fundamentally who fundamentally can't be trusted. Now, the problem is, to go back to where we started, there are those right-wing activists who are stealing a page from the left-wing activists and behaving in a very sloppy way, right? So, mm -hmm. like they're they're trying to win, they're, you know, they're pretending to be journalists when they're really activists. Say, right? It doesn't mean they're wrong about the problem of critical race theory. It's just again, this is we're we're witnessing the the desecration of all standards of of objectivity, and it's um it's a problem. I, again, I, the temptation to name names here is is excruciating, but I'm going to decline. <laughs> anyway, so do, just just push back on the, on this claim that this is a the fringe of the fringe concern, and it's just it's being massively exaggerated by the right wing echo chamber. Yeah, no, I mean uh, the the way in which it, it it exists in schools is 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 provable, and I, I do some chapter and verse stuff on that. Much more interesting and much more disturbing is the way in which it's uh, this this line of thinking, the revenge thinking, has flooded through entity after entity and organization after organization, indeed department after department in the U.S. I mean, look at things like the pathologizing of white people, the the invention of terms that are pseudo medical. I mean, I just mentioned earlier white fragility, but we've also been gifted, you know, white tears, white female tears. Who were gifted the idea of white rage after January the sixth, and, and and no less a figure than the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, talked about white rage as if it was a thing. Hmm. Again, I mean, play it any other way round. Imagine if if um, people talked about black rage as being a, a psychological phenomenon in this in this in this way, and and it's it's not just that institutions after institutions keep getting caught in this terrible and sloppy way of thinking. It's that there seem to be no gates anymore to it. So I'm one of those people by training with Ian McEwen once said the us uh, know nothing humanities types. And uh, us know, know nothing humanities types tend to believe that the gates are extremely firm at the um at the doorway of STEM subjects, for mm. instance. And you just see time and again, and as I explain in the book, you know, it just isn't the case. No, I mean, you, you, cite, you cite how the, you know, the journal Nature and Science and the Lancet, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it, it, our preeminent all the major scientific medical, journals. Yeah. yeah, all of the major scientific journals. You see, um, oh, uh, the American Medical Association, you know, releasing a six, an 86-page equity plan uh, that rejected the idea of, quote, equality as a process. And the American Medical Association said that its stated aims are to dismantle structural racism to dismantle white supremacy and to acknowledge racism as a public health threat. You have American nuclear scientists being sent on away days to talk about their white privilege and about what they've gained from their whiteness. You get university departments that should have no truck with this actually mainlining it. You get, again, you know, premier institutions like Yale University platforming a, a, a woman called Aruna Kulanani, who gave a speech last year at Yale called The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind, in which uh, Kilanani said that uh, in her speech that one of her, her fantasies is about, quote, unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that gets in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands 
as I walk away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world a fucking favor. This is absolutely, I can't stress this enough, this is absolutely commonplace rhetoric. That is at an extreme of the rhetoric. But this idea that, that whiteness is a thing to be interrogated and much more is, 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 is now an endemic part of American public life in particular. And since America has now become a net exporter of bad ideas, it's pumped this idea around the rest of the world. It's particularly mm. pumped it around the rest of the English-speaking world so that countries like my own country of birth, Great Britain, now are playing their own versions of this game, you know, interrogating the whiteness of our history, looking at what white privilege looks like in the past and historically as well as in the present. This is a, an incredibly sloppy system of thought, which in record time has been injected almost everywhere. Yeah, I, I, some people will still doubt that claim. They, you know, having not encountered it themselves, or and and just not believing that it could be as ubiquitous as you're making out. I mean, I can say that it, the parents' eye view of this is gives you a fairly privileged position to mm. see just how insane all this has has become. And I mean, so, you know, as a parent of two girls in school, uh, w where we have taken pains to to avoid the most um, would advertise themselves as, as true temples of, of wokeness, we still have not managed to avoid this problem, mm. right? And, mm. you know, so it's just... What, it, what's the part of the problem you've, you experience most as a parent, would you say? Well, I mean, just, the, just the, this kind of messaging is broadcast everywhere. So, I mean, just, just take one example. My daughter's first experience of history class in middle school Literally the first session, this is coming back after COVID, the professor asked, what's one of the worst things that has happened in recent years? And a few people ventured the guess, uh, well, the, the COVID pandemic. And he said, uh, not quite. Uh, anyone else? And then someone guessed uh, racism. And he said, yes, yes, absolutely racism. And the COVID pandemic was so terrible because it disproportionately affected black and brown people. Mm. Right. Like, mm. so this was the, this is, this is the, uh, this is the lesson. This is like the first thing that is, that is being piped into my daughter's brain in history class yeah. in a way that is, was like brooking no disagreement. Right. This is, these right. are just objective facts. Right. I mean, you can see how we got here. Let, let's, let's do our best to steel man mm. this cultural derangement because it, it is, it, it, it's, it's so, it is so obvious to us that you're not going to get past racism by injecting more racism on no. the other, in the other side of the balance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So having, you know, having kids segregate by race and then talk about their racial identities for, you know, from the moment they can, they can talk about anything. Clearly, that's got to be counterproductive, mm. and yet that's what's being recommended in so many places. But I mean, you can see that we got here because we have had now at least two generations, speaking specifically in, in, in the U.S., where mm. it has been illegal since you know, 1964 to be racist in any meaningful way, and yet we have a persistent problem of inequality, which is not perfectly correlated with race, but it still is significantly correlated with race, you know, and this is mm. inequality with respect to basically everything you could care about, you know, whether it's health or wealth or mm. education, 
Mm. You know, any any life outcome uh, that uh, is desirable, there is, it is unequally attained in American society, and you know you're disproportionately badly off if you're black, and yes. you're disproportionately well off if you're white or you know worse still Asian at the moment. Yes. So people are are at a loss for what to do about that and it does seem a like a a natural extension of their compassion mm. to suspect that the reason why this problem hasn't been solved is that there is some lingering mm. racism that accounts for yes. why it hasn't been and well, so yeah. Well, it seems to me that what, what happens in the American context is that there's a single lens that is being used to understand everything. Uh, that racism is a single lens that, that a certain type of person can look at the whole world through. And of course, when you come to things like inequalities in household wealth or household earnings, it is not at all clear. In fact, it's very clear that it isn't the case, that the sole explanation for this is racism. Well, otherwise, especially especially when you look at a population like uh, Nigerian immigrants and discover that they're among the most successful people right. in American society, and then you have to ask, well, how did they not get held back by all this ambient yes, racism? Exactly. So, and and again, I mean, if if it was the case and that this contention was true that America remains a white supremacist society which wishes to embed racist ideas and keep people down if they're not white. It would be curious, as you say, that Asian Americans outperform white Americans. Like, Why hasn't the racism endemic in the system been more effective in keeping the Asians down? Mm. Would be the obvious question. Why is, is our Hispanics who perform better than American blacks but slightly less than American whites are they the subjects of a bit of the racism and that's why they're in the part of it that they are in? To ask it is to answer it. This must be a multidimensional problem, all of what we're talking about, which instead of looking at it as a multidimensional problem, a certain type of person has decided is a straightforward, simplistic problem, which like everything else has an answer in racism. Mm. As for how we got here, it seems to me, I was speaking recently about this with Heather MacDonald, who's done a lot of work, among other things, on um, police statistics, and she does a lot of work yeah. on, the, on all that, as you and many of your listeners will know. And she said that one of her views was that, that part of this is a backlash to something that didn't happen. That, and I think it's an interesting point, that, that after, after the 60s, there was an assumption that black Americans would rise swiftly to the same position that white Americans were in. And because it didn't happen, you've now got this position in the 21st century, where people are scurrying around for a, an easy explanation of why that didn't happen. And the easiest one of all is the racism one, which sounds bizarre, of course, because accusing an entire society of institutional racism doesn't sound like that easy an issue. It doesn't sound like that easier a thing to choose as your favorite lens. Mm -hmm. But of course, it is simply a lot easier than any of the alternatives. I mean, let me give one other quick example of that. You know, it's like the one of, I go into the way in which this has been, you know, obviously just disastrous for, for among other things, for, for smart young black people to, to get out of the situation that they might have been born into if they're born into the lower socioeconomic status of black American society. W look at what the teaching unions 
have decided in recent months to prioritize, such as the abolition of standardized testing. As you know, standardized testing is one of the best ways for people, the best way, so not one of the best ways, yeah. the best way yeah. to escape poverty, whatever class you're in, whatever racial background you come from. The teaching unions, it is so much easier for them if you are these unions who, who constantly, despite your budget, perform excruciatingly badly on the international rankings on basic literacy and numeracy, where you still have high percentages of American students leaving schools in, in, in the world's foremost economy, leaving schools functionally illiterate and innumerate. It is so much easier after a period where the teaching unions went along with many students, particularly the poorest students, including the poorest students of, uh, uh, in America who happen to be black, basically missing more than a year of schooling and of their education. It is so much easier at the end of that process, of course, for the teaching union leaders like Brandy Weingarten to blame institutional racism for everything and announce that they're going to do away with standardized testing. Because otherwise, you've got to deal with the fact that you've been crap at your jobs. You, you, you've been leading a profession that clearly isn't up to scratch in the country. You've been letting down millions and millions of Americans. It's much easier to just say, we live in an institutionally racist country, so this is the sort of mm. thing that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, w so our, our illiteracy and innumeracy is a matter of record. But one thing you point out in your book is that our, and when I say our here, I, I mean, in particular, Americans, our ignorance of history, both mm. our own and the history of others, is at the bottom of a, an interesting asymmetry here. because we, yes. Because the this demonization of all things Western and white is uh, it really relies on a, a stacking of the deck against Western history, which, if you're at all aware of what else has happened, or even the details of you know what what has happened in the West, it just doesn't run through. And you you mm. point this out in in many ways. And I, maybe there's two examples here which would be interesting to go into. I mean, one is just the the different reputational fates of people like Winston Churchill versus Marx and uh, <laughs> yeah. Michel Foucault, right? I mean, yeah. like, a, so like a comparison there would be interesting. And also just, I don't know if we want to get into it, but the, the degree to which we imperfectly summarize the history of slavery, mm. right, globally speaking. Mm. I mean, that was a very interesting comparison. The and just, you know, why is it that the... Uh, the Arab slave trade gets mm. so little notice, and why there aren't populations of mm. former Africans in Arab lands. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the first thing um, in relation to the reputations, it seems to me, and I, I try to demonstrate in this in the chapter on history that it's just something I noticed in recent years is that absolutely every hero of the West, as I have seen it and was vaguely brought up with, has been assaulted in recent years through the same monotone means. Living in a time when racism was deemed acceptable, living in a time when slavery was deemed acceptable or colonialism, and being guilty of some kind of taint. So I give the example of Winston Churchill, who uh, most people in my country of birth and around the world regard as being one of the greatest men in history, certainly of the 20th century. And in the last uh, 10 years in particular, his reputation has suddenly just been assaulted. He didn't have 21st century views on race. He is charged with various errors. 
and uh, accused particularly of colonialism. And, and so Winston Churchill is brought down. The same thing is done with all the founding fathers, because of course they were there at the founding and that slavery still existed. And the same thing is done with uh, Abraham Lincoln, racism. Uh, it's done with absolutely everybody who used to be the sort of heroes. And it's done, one of the most interesting things is that it's been done, and this is, as you know, in the chapter on religion, I say, well, you know, there's obviously two major traditions in, in the West. One is the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, but other, another is our philosophical tradition, including the tradition of the Enlightenment, which you've mm. been uh, particularly forthright on in recent years as well. And you know, it is amazing to me to see that every single one of the leading figures of the Enlightenment in recent years has been brought down, sometimes quite literally. David Hume, one footnote in one of his essays is undoubtedly racist. Every Hume scholar knows it. Nobody likes it. It's a bit of an embarrassment because, among other things, it runs against everything else in Hume's philosophy, but it's, it's there. Hmm. Uh, Voltaire, uh, now his statue in Paris, is actually missing. It was assaulted so many times with red paint. And people say that Voltaire was a supporter of the slave trade, that he made, even made money from it. They forget the fact that in uh, Candide, he gave us one of the great condemnations of the slave trade. But, you know, go on and on. Locke, Mill, every single one of the Enlightenment philosophers has had the same thing done to them, which is you lived in a time of colonialism and slavery, and you didn't expend your energies in stopping it. Indeed, you were complicit in it. This is what's done with Immanuel Kant. And so all of these people, one by one, have been, have been brought down in the same way. And this includes, you know, includes taking down statues, renaming buildings that are named mm. after them, and much more. Basically putting all the Enlightenment philosophers behind crime scene tape. And as I say, if you were to be, apart from the fact that this is deeply unfair, in each of their cases, and I explain why, it, you would have to be consistent. And there is no consistency, because as I show, uh, Karl Marx was, by modern standards, wildly racist as well as anti-Semitic, repeatedly used the N-word in his private correspondence with Engels, usually hyphenated with Jew, because he was also, of course, profoundly anti-Semitic. He was mm. awful on slavery, awful on colonialism, in his published and his private writings. So if you're going to start taking down people from the past because of this, uh, why not Marx? And since uh, this has come out in recent days, since I've been right, you know, exposed this and, and so on, it was a dirty little secret of Marxists. That, you know, various Marxists have come out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, he was a man of his time. <laughs> I say, well, yeah. who is not? You know, who thinks that we go to Thomas Jefferson because we admire his position on slavery? Uh, we admire Jefferson for other reasons. You know, Kendi defames Jefferson, by the way, in a, in a way I show in the book. Um, so sloppily for something that Jefferson says, which is really quite enlightened, uh, uh, certainly very enlightened for his time, where he says in a private letter that he thinks that, uh, uh, Kendi only says that he notices that Jefferson says that the races are different. What he doesn't note is that Jefferson says in this private letter, because I don't think Kendi bothered to read the whole thing, that Jefferson says, in my, in my observation, the native uh, Americans appear to come to the same standard as Europeans in terms of academic you know, attainment within about a you know, generation. And, and this is very interesting. And he says, I don't know if the same thing will happen with, with blacks in America, but, but my, you know, my suspicion is that it could. This is for the time a pretty enlightened thing to think and to say it's not where we are today because we live two centuries later. But, but, but all of these things, are, there's this unequal treatment, which is very, very striking because it gives away, I think, uh, the fact that we're dealing with people who 
who are not really honest critics in this. They're not really simply trying to litigate something afresh and do it more decently. They're actually creating a sort of indecent litigation of their own. And then as for the, the, the second thing, which is the context, I mean, you're right, Sam, to point to the fact that, I mean, and again, I've got to be, I don't want to unnecessarily alienate my American listeners, but American lack of understanding of history is simply heroic at this stage. The, the way in which the American story is told to Americans without the context of the wider world is, I think, a serious piece of self-harm. Mm. You know, when people like the New York Times set up the 1619 Project, again, not a fringe thing. The paper of record, as used to be in New York, sets up a, a project which states that its aim is to reframe the founding date of the American Republic. You're not dealing with a fringe movement. This is a very, yeah, very central well, attempt to spend a moment America. on the on the forensics of that because well, one, they it's not fringe because it's the New York Times setting out to change the the view of the founding of America. But two, it's an effort for which they the authors won a Pulitzer Prize. Yes. And three, uh, when all when when all of the historical errors were swiftly pointed out, they began redacting it without acknowledging that they were doing so. Mm. Yes. Uh, in fact, somebody said to me uh, yesterday something about the public intellectuals and in talking about people like Kendi D'Angelo, uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and others. And I said, it's actually incorrect to call them public intellectuals because they won't, they won't test their views in public. Hmm. Consistently, the 1619 Project silently edited the contents of its own publication. They repeatedly said that they hadn't said things which they had said, but they got away with saying they hadn't said them, as I say in the show in the book, because they'd silently edited the relevant content online. Now, I mean, this is, and, and they will not debate their opponents. They will not yeah. debate historians because they're not historians themselves, in the same way that Kendi and D'Angelo will not debate, even when people put up very large sums of money to challenge them to do so. In a way, it's wrong to call these public intellectuals. They're sort of public me megaphones of a kind. Did you notice Coleman Hughes's April Fool's joke on Twitter? Yes, <laughs> I love Coleman. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. Coleman, but, Coleman said, uh, I'm, I'm happy to announce that Ibram Kendi has agreed to debate me on April 1st. He uh, announced <laughs> that, and, and many people uh, celebrated not yes. knowing the date. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's no way that, he would, that, 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 that Kendi would debate Coleman because Coleman would make gentle mincemeat out of him. Yeah. And, 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 but, 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 but just to get back to the point, the point is, is that on, on each of these cases, you're dealing with non-historians lying about history, deeply misrepresenting history. And as a result, the American public are fed this version of themselves that, as I say, is at the very least deeply unfair. I, I, I have this sort of challenge, you know, like, would one in a million Americans know who else was doing slavery at the time that America was doing slavery? Hmm. Would, would one in a million of them know that if between 10 and 12 million souls were taken across the Atlantic in the, in the Atlantic, transatlantic slave trade, that up to 18 million were taken east in the Arab slave trade? Now, none of this is to diminish or to whataboutery or anything like that, the appallingness of the uh, transatlantic slave trade. But the reason why, as you allude to, as I say in the book, the reason why we don't know about the Arab slave trade that was even larger than the horrific transatlantic slave trade is because the Arabs systematically castrated all of the male Africans imported 
so that they wouldn't have another generation. This was, people sometimes talk about the transatlantic slave trade as a genocide, which of course it wasn't in, a, in, in, in any proper sense. Many, many people died, but it is not the case that it was an attempt to wipe out the people. On the contrary, one of the wickednesses of the slave trade transatlantic was that, that they wanted to keep people alive in order to then basically use them. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but the Arab slave trade actually was a type of genocide. And we hear nothing about it. We hear nothing about the fact that, that even today, as I mentioned in the book, uh, the word for a black person in um, Saudi Arabia is abid, uh, the plural abid, which literally means slave. One of the first people to alert me to that was our mutual friend Ayan Hersiali, who said that when yeah. she was a girl in Saudi Arabia uh, after her, her family left Somalia, uh, they were referred to as such as slaves, because that, that, that's the term that the Arabs still use for black people. And, uh, you know, this is, I, I, as I say, I don't know why there is so little interest in the context, because I think people seem to think that if they'd have any context of the time, somehow it'll excuse it. It'll excuse what America did or what, what Britain did in the colonies. It, it'll excuse it, and therefore we'll try to do it again. But I, in my view, that is such an outlandish fear, because there is zero chance of America starting up slavery again, zero chance that Britain is going to suddenly start to try to conquer countries and, and rebuild the empire, that, that we could do with having a more reasonable attitude towards our own past. And, and crucially, one other point, if I may, which is, is what disturbs me in this in particular is not just that we get the past wrong, but that we're blaming people in the present for that past. You see, it is now yeah. presumed that white Americans, for instance, must always bear a guilt for what their antecedents did. And first of all, for many people, they're not in any way related to the people even who, who did any of this. Um, just as many of the people who would claim to be descended from slaves are not descended from slaves or will be descended from slaves and slavers, you know, right. descended right. from people who were sold and the people who did the selling. And you know, one of the things I've just had, I've thought a lot about in recent years, I did in The Strange Death of Europe when I was writing about German guilt and the, the, the consequences down the generations of that and what it really means in, in ethical terms. You get in the situation of present day America and the present day West in particular, I think, a really troubling ethical position where you claim that one group of people, i.e. white people, have to bear a historic guilt because people who who may have resembled them did something in history to people who now it is claimed people who resemble them need to have some kind of um uh, of reparation or something else as a result of it and i think it is you know the, the sins of the father ethic was recognized to be a terrible ethic to to punish a son for the sins of the father yeah. but punishing a, a great 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 nephew because of the sins of, of is 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 a, I mean, I think among other things as well as being unethical. I think it's an unsustainable position because you know I have no responsibility as somebody born in 1979 for what Britain did in the colonial period. Uh, you know, I, I haven't benefited from the privilege of it. I haven't got any responsibility for slavery any more than somebody living in modern Ghana has a responsibility for selling slaves. It, mm. there, there's a there's a but, but to demand it of one group of people 
is an example of this this thing which has practical consequences. I give the example in this in the book of Paul Rossi, a teacher at a school in Manhattan, as you you'll know, became quite famous last year because he was he was in the end fired from his job because he'd been made to take take part in a sort of white students and teachers struggle session and objected slightly to some of the content and and was then denounced by his his employers. But one of the things that Rossi said in the in the conversation with his head teacher, the, his employer, was, you're saying that white children must, that white people must carry uh, the sins of, of what has happened in the past and must be deemed to be guilty. And the head, head teacher agrees that. And he says, but therefore you are saying that white children should bear this. And the, the head teacher eventually sort of concedes that. But it's the bit of it that nobody really wants to concede. You're saying that some children, by dint of their skin color, are born into evil and others, other children, by dint of their skin color, are born into non-evil. And that seems to me such a moral error. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we fully agree about that. It's, I think we're equally astonished that more people don't see it, right? I mean, they, rather, they, they see it as... I don't, I don't even think they see it as a, a necessary evil that could be an effective remedy. Mm. They see it as an appropriate moral communication to children, mm. right? I mean, yes. they, they, clearly, they, they want to produce some kind of effect. It's to counter some current inequality. Yes. But they also just think it's important for a seven-year-old to understand a, a group-level difference between him or herself and the rest of humanity. Yes. That is morally and politically valenced. And it's... Uh, it's completely insane. I mean, it's just, it's mm. it's totally indefensible to to my mind, and it's astounding that it's not. I mean, I, I think we're living through something analogous to the satanic cult panic mm. that happened in the eighties. I don't know if it, yes, you, you I might do. Be too young I was reading a book about it. that yeah. only recently, a very good book about it called "Believe the Children," mm. uh, a very good book. Yes, it's very similar to that, and everyone yeah. then forgot about it straight afterwards. Yeah, and the just the the exaggerations of I mean, th th this is when you ask people what they think, they're like the, the numbers of I mean, to take it back to Heather McDonald's wheelhouse of mm. police violence and evidence of racism. Therein, if you ask the average person how many people are killed unjustly by cops each year in America, and how many of them are black, I mean, the numbers the numbers you get are astoundingly inaccurate mm. and they just think that people by the tens of thousands are being killed by cops yes. and all in unjustly most of them are unarmed i mean it's just there's no mm. they, they have no not even a semblance of a picture of what's actually going on yes they're off by and, several orders of magnitude as you know yeah yeah, yeah. so um but the, but, the, but this I, is yes this is this is if i may say something this is this is also part of the problem is is americans imbibing not just a false idea of their past, but a false idea of their present. Yeah. Where, I mean, as you know, I, mean, I give it in those figures of the, the, the disparities between actual police violence and, and what people imagine is the case. But I mean, you can see it as well in these examples, they're rather ludicrous. Uh, some of them are actually just funny of, of, of moral panics on American campuses with repeated, you know, sightings of KKK people walking through campus, you know, as if, 
Uh, in one case, the whole campus goes into lockdown. It turns out the sighting is of a Dominican monk who is not carrying a whip, as originally said, but a rosary in his hand. Hmm. And, um, and, and you have to ask yourself, what is wrong in the minds of an entire community such as that, an, an entire campus, that they l believe that America in the 2020s is a place where the Ku Klux Klan congregate on campuses or wander around solo waving whips? I mean, it, it, it's, there's something going on, as you say, like the satanic panic in the 1980s, which is, it, it shows a distorted picture of, which at the very least, at the most generous, you could say, is, is maybe 100 years out of date, uh, but is, is a distorted view of the present through which everything is then seen. And if, I, su I suppose, if you did think you lived in a country where tens of thousands of unarmed black men are killed every year by the police and the Ku Klux Klan congregate, in Whole Foods and also on liberal arts college campuses. If you did think that was the case, maybe you do need this correction that's going on. But we don't live in that country. America isn't like that. Hmm. These aren't the facts. And, 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 and it is, there is something so disturbing about the, the way in which the present can be dis so distorted that it could actually lead people to commit errors which themselves will create a whole new type of problem. Yeah, there's there's a an element to this which is, I think, not. I mean, race is is the variable we've been focusing on, and, and mm. it, you give it a lot of time in your book. But there's this um, more generic distrust of American power, Western mm. power, and there's this, you know, an understandable disease with. In a, you know wealth inequality and, and and variables like class, and again to, to come back to the the unequal treatment of someone like Churchill when, with, compared to Marx or Foucault, I guess the the critique of power and the critique of capitalism here is a variable that is uh, I think deranging people's thinking because it's very hard to imagine a conservative figure or really anyone who is not just shrilly tearing down capitalism and Western power with both hands, surviving the kind of disclosures that w that, that that recently emerged around Foucault. Mm. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe you just want to like, just, yes. just try to imagine. You know, so, I, I don't know who the the comparable figure in the center or the right would be to prop up uh, beside him, but. And perhaps you could just tell us yes. uh, who, I mean, first of all, Foucault, you know, for those who haven't, who, who escaped him in college, <laughs> they might not be aware of this, but Foucault was, was one of the most influential thinkers in the humanities in, for at least a generation, but largely for his critique of basically putting everything in culture in terms of power relations. Yes. Oh, and and is, is still, I think, the most cited figure across disciplines in in uh, in in, paper, in peer reviewed papers yeah well uh, as as you say i mean foucault has had a huge impact and i'm generally not one for judging writers or philosophers or anyone else by the, their pub, their private behavior because uh, there's no reason why a writer needs to be a moral paragon and you know save that for the priesthood and they'll they'll have a go at pretending that but nevertheless, sometimes if somebody does something this reprehensible, you'd have thought it would have some effect. And it was, it was uh, made public in France uh, in uh, March 2021. 
there's a, a, a French philosopher called Guy Sormat. And he, uh, he, he, he confirmed on the record for the first time, I think, something that a lot of people knew about privately, uh, which was that when um, Foucault used to visit Tunis in North Africa in the late 1960s, he used to um, pay young prepubescent boys in cash and rape them on uh, a tombstone in a local cemetery. I mean, this, this sounds like something from the satanic panic of the 1980s. I mean, it sounds like a sort of fantastical, it's so bad, you, you know, it's almost... Um, but yes, that he would meet them at the local cemetery and rape them on the gravestones. And, and Sormin says uh, there was clearly an element to which the fact that these were not white children was uh, part of the turn-on for mm. Foucault. Now, as I say, I don't like to be prurient about people's private lives, but I would suggest that if, for instance, it had emerged that if it had been claimed that, say, William F. Buckley had um, routinely uh, travelled to North Africa and, uh, and, and, and paid and raped uh, underage local boys, I think a lot of the left would have thought that was rather suggestive about something in, mm. uh, in, um, in modern American conservatism. At the very least, they would say this sort of you know, major figure in the American right should, you know, should be sort of um, not listen to anymore, they, or they say, you know, we must work out what of his work is, you know, what what of his work is polluted because of this discovery, and what is not. In the case of Foucault, I mean, all of his work on sexual power dynamics, you know, and much more, let alone his, his writings on prison and madness, all of which, as you say, looks at all of human life through this relentless power dynamic lens. And I wrote about that a bit in the Madness of Crowds. I find his whole philosophy deeply alienating and deeply reductive. But, but, but so far, this, this, these revelations have had no impact on his reputation. Indeed, a fourth volume, which had remained unpublished previously, of his history of sexuality, came out since the revelations occurred. Now, mm. I'm not calling for, for Foucault to be silenced or for his publishers to stop publishing him or anything else, but it does seem extraordinary to me. And it seems slightly like our earlier part of our conversation. There's always something suggestive about the things that people don't do when revelations come out, you know, where they, where they don't apply a, a standard that is consistent. And that is certainly the case with Foucault. What, what I mind about this, as it were, what riles me up about it is that, as you know from the last chapter of my book, this chapter on culture, I mind because ev there is now not a delicate flower, literally within the culture, that cannot be run through the monotone lens of racial politicking. I give examples of garden centers. Uh, it sounds ludicrous, I know, but uh, garden centers that, and horticultural enterprises that are, are being decolonized. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, lawns, one academic in Canada claimed recently, lawns are racist because they represent order. Uh, I mean, that, that man must be a racist because, I mean, he clearly thinks that black people represent disorder. Hmm. But, but anyway, the point is, is that Every, every museum in the West, every collection of art in the West, every opera, every piece of music, every, every classical uh, um, music ensemble, every, every library is being put through this decolonization lens. And it's, it's all being done. And as I give examples of it, from Shakespeare to Ted Hughes to Rex Whistler and many, many others, it's being done so unfairly, so ineptly. And at the same time, you know, Foucault turns out to rape local Arab boys for cash in a gra on a gravestone at midnight. You know, tant pis. Well, perhaps we've established that you have to break some eggs to make an omelet, and uh, you might have to <laughs> rape a few boys in a graveyard as well. Right. I mean, it's, it's, 
It's um, and it, and it comes, you know, my favorite Orwell quote on the, on the omelets, don't you? Orwell famously, um, uh, in 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 well, to me famously in the 1940s was once in an argument with a Stalinist, and the Stalinist was uh, um, not conceding that there was anything wrong, and you know, Orwell led him through everything that had already happened in the 30s, led him through the show trials and all this, and mm. eventually this Stalinist said, um, "Well, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs," and right. Orwell replied, "Where's your omelet?" Yeah, yeah. One of the great retorts. Yeah. But yes, I mean, where is the omelette of Foucaultism? You know, where is, where, is the, where is the product of the deconstructionists at this point? Where is, where is, the, where is the product of the interrogationists? Well, I'll, you know? I'll, tell, I'll tell you where it is. It is in the, to use a word you, you use in the book, it's in the ressentiment yes. that uh, we are, yes. are dealing with. I mean, the, the mood that is hanging all over the place, wherein even math is racist. I mean, the notion of having a right answer in yes. math is racist, or yes. punctuality is racist. I mean, this is how an implosion of standards around everything. I mean, I think, I think ressentiment is the right mm. concept here. I mean, yes. it, I, I feel like you, if memory serves, you don't really differentiate it from resentment mm. in your book, but it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it does seem... You think there is a subtle, there is a, there is a difference. I think there's a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's like resentment is... Um, I mean, re- resentment isn't by definition illegitimate. I mean, you could see, you could have good reasons to resent mm-hmm. being treated badly, say, yes. or you know, unfairly. And, you know, and people who are unlucky in life might resent people who are luckier and mm. because there's, there's no good reason for this uh, disparity in luck. Yes. Um, you know, you didn't earn your good luck and you didn't earn your bad luck. But ressentiment suggests, and this is, this is I, I think, what Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and others who use the term were, were often getting at, it suggests a, because you, you are not faring well by comparison with mm. some standard, you are rejecting the standard and basically you're willing to tear. It's not only not only are you lamenting your own state, mm. you're kind of willing to destroy everything in sight. Yes. So as to re- reduce everything to your level. Yes, right? that's right. And so, and there's something. I mean, it's a confusing thing to differentiate. But when no, you get a- to the, this place where where the you you have academics exceeding to the claim that the notion of a right answer in math is a is a holdover from colonialism or mm. racism or some other mm. form of bigotry or thought crime it's just where's the next stop yes. <laughs> on yes. the way to the abyss yes uh, this is uh, it's a it's it's uh, to me it's an incredibly important subject and it's why i do one of my interludes which readers of the madness of crowds will know i am so fond of as a device that I do these major chapters, but also try to step back in between in what I call interludes, and that I do an interlude on gratitude, which is, mm. as a number of philosophers have, have, have said, and I, uh, completely is my own observable experience, my own lived experience, you might say, that this is the case, is that the, the, the best answer to uh, people of resentment, of resentiment, is, is, is gratitude. It's the only thing of equivalent depth that you might be able to that you might be able to deal with. Nietzsche, Nietzsche is obviously 
in the genealogy of morals is, is which I lean on the most is is extraordinary on these on this phenomenon. I much urge anyone interested in it to read that because he pinpoints so devastatingly accurately things that, are, that we see around us today. I mean, he talks, for instance, of, of the people of Resentiment who, he says, tear at, at wounds long healed and then cry about the pain that has been inflicted. You know, I, 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 th I think that struck me the moment I read it as being mm. hor horribly accurate. He, he defines the type of person who, who sets up the world as what they have not got, and therefore what other people have taken, um, and what must be pulled down. And in he, but he gets, of course, to the to, to one of the most unpleasant truths in in this whole thing. And I mean, for the sake of of the modern discussion, I, I, I don't know how this could be done without, as it were, causing a type of revolution. But but he points to the fact that somebody actually mired in in, in true resentment uh, of, towards the world. That that although the deep underlying answer is to be able to find a way to find gratitude in the world, the answer to the, to the specific suffering that person is going through is for somebody to stand over them. I think Nietzsche says a sort of the wise priest figure or something, but that somebody stands over the figure and says, "You are correct. There is a person who has held you back. There is a person who has been holding you down. The person is you." Of course, of all of the things that anyone would want to hear in their life, that is the least desirable to hear. But yet it seems to me manifestly the case. Many, many people I've seen in my own life, the, the, what, why does the phrase, you know, his own worst enemy have such relevancy? It's a sort of form of that. It's a, a parochialism of that. And, 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 I, and I say that, you know, since we are stuck in this sort of deep resentment, we have to find a way out of it. And, and the, the deeper way out of it, which I try, I, I always, I mean, I really try to sort of wrestle this book around to a positive conclusion is, is to say that it, it seems so clear to me that, that the, the answer is, is to try to arrive at that deep underlying shift in one's attitudes that instead of just bagging everything that's good and um, not to spending any time thinking about it and moving on to the next thing you can complain about, to, to instead spend time lingering on the things that you have that are good. And instead of saying what you have not got and bemoaning it, reflect on what you have. And I think multiple wisdom traditions, as you well know, um, come to this or varieties of this conclusion. And in our own day, I say that there's, there's no reason why people, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the reasons we know that the West works is because the footfall goes in only one direction. Hmm. We have all sorts of inequalities. We have all sorts of things we could do better and improve on in our own societies. Many things we could spend the whole day listing them and still, still have many more. But nevertheless, when boats cross the Mediterranean from North Africa to Europe, they do not meet boats coming the other way of people fleeing France in order to live in Africa. Uh, the people at that point often would joke at me, well, look at the colonialist. Yes, they didn't actually seek the, the better life there and they didn't stay in the end. Uh, the southern border of the United States about which we hear so much, you know, the, the people coming north do not meet people going south. There must be something that is going right. The, all of the UN reports on the countries people want to go to, from around the world, from 
a bewildering array, array of countries. The number one country by a long way remains the United States of America with uh, Britain, Canada, and others uh, following quite closely behind. Actually, not that a little way, quite a way behind, actually. Um, mm. So there must be something good that is going on in the West. And, and, and uh, my suggestion, among other things, is we don't have to, by any means, ignore bad things in our history. We by no means have to have some ridiculous monotone discussion in reply to a monotone discussion or reflect one inadequate interpretation of history by inserting back in another inadequate version. But we must be able to recognize that there must be something in our societies that is good. There must be things about them that are worth sustaining. And if there's anything that, you know, that could unite us in that or wake us up to realizing that, I would love us to be able to tap into it. Because so far, every time I've thought in my modern adult life that it might happen, I'm disappointed. You know, at the beginning of COVID, I thought, well, here's something that might unite us in recognizing what, what we have. You know, maybe this yeah. is a sort of, like, it didn't last a second as far as I can see. No. I think the same thing when the Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine. I thought maybe those of us in modern Western democracies moaning about our lot will, will look at people in similar looking cities being shelled by Russian tanks and think, good God, maybe I'm, maybe I'm lucky to be where I am. Uh, but it didn't seem to last an, a, a, a nanosecond. But maybe we could find a way to linger on the fact that there must be something we've done right, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Well, Douglas, uh, we could talk for many hours, but um, I think it's a good place to leave it. And I'll just uh, assure our listeners that we did not exhaust everything that's of interest in, in your new book, The War on the West. It's really, uh, you go into detail on all of these points that we've covered and, and many others. And it's, um, it's pretty astounding as, a, as a, a case against a kind of cultural contagion and, and panic, which uh, we have to find some way of arresting. Thanks again, Douglas, for your time. It's always great to hear your voice. It's a great pleasure, Sam, and likewise, very much likewise. 